Chapter twenty six of The Mayor of Casterbridge by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty six. It chanced that on a fine spring morning Henchard and Farfrey met in the chestnut walk which ran along the south wall of the town. Each had just come out from his early breakfast, and there was not another soul near. Henchard was reading a letter from Lucetta, sent in answer to a note from him, in which she made some excuse for not immediately granting him a second interview that he had desired. Donald had no wish to enter into conversation with his former friend, on their present constrained terms. Neither would he pass him in scowling silence. He nodded, and Henchard did the same. They had proceeded from each other several paces when a voice cried, Farfrey! It was Henchard's who stood regarding him. "'Do you remember?' said Henchard, as if it were the presence of the thought and not of the man which made him speak. "'Do you remember my story of that second woman, who suffered from her thoughtless intimacy with me?' "'I do,' said Farfrey. "'Do you remember my telling me how it all began and how it ended?' "'Yes.' "'Well, I've offered to marry her now that I can, but she won't marry me. Now what would you think of her? I put it to you.' "'Well,' "'You heard nothing more now,' said Farfrey heartily. "'It is true,' said Henchard, and went on. "'That he had looked up from a letter to ask his questions, "'completely shut out from Farfrey's mind all vision of Lucetta as the culprit. "'Indeed, her present position was so different from that of the young woman of Henchard's story "'as of itself to be sufficient to blind him absolutely to her identity.' As for Henchard, he was reassured by Farfrey's words and manner, against the suspicion which had crossed his mind. They were not those of a conscious rival. Yet that there was rivalry by some one, he was firmly persuaded. He could feel it in the air around Lucetta, see it in the turn of her pen. There was an antagonistic force in exercise, so that when he had tried to hang near her, he seemed standing in a refluent current. That it was not innate caprice, he was more and more certain. Her windows gleamed as if they did not want him. Her curtains seemed to hang slyly as if they screened an ousting presence. To discover whose presence that was, whether really Farfrey's after all or another's, he exerted himself to the utmost to see her again, and at length succeeded. At the interview, when she offered him tea, he made it a point to launch a cautious inquiry if she knew Mr. Farfrey. Oh, yes, she knew him, she declared. She could not help knowing almost everybody in Casterbridge, living in such a gazebo over the centre and arena of the town. "'Pleasant young fellow,' said Henchard. "'Yes,' said Lucetta. "'We both know him,' said kind Elizabeth Jane, to relieve her companion's divined embarrassment. There was a knock at the door, literally three full knocks and a little one at the end. "'That kind of knock means half and half.' "'Somebody between gentle and simple,' said the corn merchant to himself. "'I shouldn't wonder, therefore, if it is he.' In a few seconds, surely enough, Donald walked in. Lucetta was full of little fidgets and flutters, which increased Henchard's suspicions, without affording any special proof of their correctness. He was well-nigh ferocious at the sense of the queer situation in which he had stood towards this woman. One who had reproached him for deserting her, when calumniated— who had urged claims upon his consideration on that account, who had lived waiting for him, who at the first decent moment had come to ask him to rectify by making her his, the false position into which she had placed herself for his sake. Such she had been. 
and now he sat at her tea-table eager to gain her attention, and in his amatory rage, feeling the other man present to be a villain, just as any young fool of a lover might feel. They sat stiffly side by side at the darkening table, like some Tuscan painting of the two disciples supping at Emmaus. Lucetta, forming the third and hallowed figure, was opposite them. Elizabeth Jane, being out of the game and out of the group, could observe all from afar, like the evangelist who had to write it down. But there were long spaces of taciturnity, when all exterior circumstance was subdued to the touch of spoons and china, the click of a heel on the pavement under the window, the passing of a wheelbarrow or cart, the whistling of the carter, the gush of water into householders' buckets at the town-pump outside, the exchange of greetings among their neighbours, and the rattle of the yokes by which they carried off their evening supply. "'More bread and butter?' said Lucetta to Henshard and Farfrae equally, holding out between them a plate full of long slices. Henshard took a slice by one end, and Donald by the other, each feeling certain he was the man meant. Neither let go, and the slice came in two. "'Oh, I am so sorry!' cried Lucetta, with a nervous titter. Farfrae tried to laugh, but he was too much in love to see the incident in any but a tragic light. "'How ridiculous of all three of them!' said Elizabeth to herself. Henchard left the house with a ton of conjecture, though without a grain of proof, that the counter-attraction was Farfrae, and therefore he would not make up his mind. Yet to Elizabeth Jane it was plain as the town-pump that Donald and Lucetta were incipient lovers. More than once, in spite of her care, Lucetta had been unable to restrain her glance from flitting across into Farfrae's eyes like a bird to its nest. But Henchard was constructed upon too large a scale to discern such minutiae as these by an evening light, which to him were as the notes of an insect that lie above the compass of the human ear. But he was disturbed, and the sense of occult rivalry and suitorship was so much superadded to the palpable rivalry of their business lives. To the coarse materiality of that rivalry it added an inflaming soul. The thus vitalized antagonism took the form of action by Henshaw's sending for Jop, the manager originally displaced by Farfrae's arrival. Henshaw had frequently met this man about the streets, observed that his clothing spoke of neediness, heard that he lived in Mixon Lane, a back slum of the town, the peace allayed of Casterbridge domiciliation, itself almost a proof that the man reached the stage when he would not stick at trifles. Jop came after dark by the gates of the storeyard and felt his way through the hay and straw to the office where Henshaw sat in solitude awaiting him. "'I am again out of a foreman,' said the corn factor. "'Are you in a place?' "'Not so much as a beggar, sir.' "'How much do you ask?' Jop named his price, which was very moderate. "'When can you come?' "'At this hour and moment, sir,' said Jop, who, standing hands-pocketed at the street corner till the sun had faded, the shoulders of his coat to scarecrow green, had regularly watched Henchard in the marketplace, measured him, and learned him, by virtue of the power which the still man has, in its stillness, of knowing the busy one better than he knows himself. Jop, too, had had a convenient experience. He was the only one in Casterbridge beside Henchard and the close-lipped Elizabeth, who knew that Lucetta came truly from Jersey, and but proximately from Bath. "'I knew Jer I know Jer Jersey, too, sir,' he said. "'Was living there when you used to do business that way. Oh, yes, I've often seen ye there.' "'Indeed. Very good. Then the thing is settled. 
testimonials you showed me when you first tried for it are sufficient. That characters deteriorate in time of need possibly did not occur to Henchard. Jop said, Thank you, and stood more firmly on the consciousness that at last he officially belonged to that spot. Now, said Henchard, digging his strong eyes into Jop's face, one thing is necessary to me, as the biggest corn and hay dealer in these parts, a Scotchman, who's taken the town trade so bold into his hands, must be cut out, do you hear? We can't live side by side, that's clear and certain. I've seen it all, said Jop. By fair competition I mean, of course, Henchard continued, but as hard, keen, and unflinching as fair, rather more so, by such a desperate bet against him for the farmer's custom as will grind him into the ground, starve him out. I've capital, mind ye, and I can do it. I'm all that way of thinking, said the new foreman. Job's dislike of Farfrey as the man who had once usurped his place, while it made him a willing tool, made him at the same time commercially as unsafe a colleague as Henchard could have chosen. I sometimes think, he added, but he must have some glass that he sees next year in. He has such a knack of making everything bring him fortune. He's deep beyond all honest man's men's discerning, but we must make him shallower. We'll undersell him and overbuy him, and so snuff him out. They then entered into specific details of the process by which this would be accomplished, and parted at a late hour. Elizabeth Jane heard by accident that Jop had been engaged by her stepfather, she was so fully convinced that he was not the right man for the place that, at the risk of making Henchard angry, she expressed her apprehension to him when they met. But it was done to no purpose. Henchard shut up her argument with a sharp rebuff. The season's weather seemed to favour their scheme. The time was in the years immediately before foreign competition had revolutionised the trade in grain. While still, as from the earliest ages, wheat quotations from month to month depended entirely upon the home harvest. A bad harvest, or the prospect of one, would double the price of corn in a few weeks, and the promise of a good yield would lower it as rapidly. Prices were like the roads of the period, steep and gradient, reflecting in their phases the local conditions without engineering, levellings, or averages. The farmer's income was ruled by the wheat crop within his own horizon, and the wheat crop by the weather. Thus in person he became a sort of flesh barometer, with feelers always directed to the sky and wind around him. The local atmosphere was everything to him, the atmospheres of other countries a matter of indifference. The people, too, who were not farmers, the rural multitude, saw in the god of the weather a more important personage than they do now. Indeed, the feeling of the peasantry in this matter so intense as to be almost unrealizable in these equable days. Their impulse was well nigh to prostrate themselves in lamentation before untimely rains and tempests, which came as the alastor of those households whose crime it was to be poor. After midsummer they watched the weathercocks as men waiting in antechambers watched the lackey. Sun elated them, quiet rain sobered them, weeks of watery tempest stupefied them. That aspect of the sky which they now regard as disagreeable, they then beheld as maleficent. It was June, and the weather was very unfavourable. Casterbridge, being as it were the bell-board on which all the adjacent hamlets and village sounded their notes, was decidedly dull. Instead of new articles in the shop windows, 
those had been rejected in the foregoing summer were brought out again superseded reap hooks badly shaped rakes sharp worn leggings and time stiffened water tights reappeared furbished up as near to new as possible henchard backed by jop read a disastrous garnering and resolved to base his strategy against farfrey upon that reading but before acting he wished what so many have wished that he could know for certain what was at present only strong probability he was superstitious as such headstrong natures often are and he nourished in his mind an idea bearing on the matter an idea he shrank from disclosing even to jop in a lonely hamlet a few miles from the town so lonely that what are called lonely villages were teeming by comparison there lived a man of curious repute as a forecaster or weather prophet the way to his house was crooked and miry even difficult in the present unpropitious season one evening when it was raining so heavily that ivy and laurel resounded like distant musketry an outdoor man could be excused for shrouding himself to his ears and eyes such a shrouded figure on foot might have been perceived travelling in the direction of the hazel copse which dripped over the prophet's cart the turnpike road became a lane the lane a cart track the cart track a bridle path the bridle path a footway the footway overgrown the solitary walker slipped here and there and stumbled over the natural springes formed by the brambles till at length he reached the house which with its garden was surrounded with a high dense hedge the cottage comparatively a large one had been built of mud by the occupier's own hands and thatched also by himself here he had always lived and here it was assumed he would die he existed on unseen supplies for it was an anomalous thing that while there was hardly a soul in the neighbourhood but affected to laugh at this man's assertions uttering the formula there is nothing in em with full assurance on the surface of their faces very few of them were unbelievers in their secret hearts whenever they consulted him they did it for a fancy when they paid him they said just a trifle for christmas or candlemas as the case might be he would have preferred more honesty in his clients and less sham ridicule but fundamental belief consoled him for superficial irony as stated he was enabled to live people supported him with their backs turned he was sometimes astonished that men could profess so little and believe so much at his house when at church they professed so much and believed so little behind his back he was called wido on account of his reputation to his face mr fall the hedge of his garden formed an arch over the entrance and a door was inserted as in a wall outside the door the tall traveller stopped bandaged his face with a handkerchief as if he were suffering from toothache and went up the path the window shutters were not closed and he could see the prophet within preparing his supper in answer to the knock fall came to the door candle in hand the visitor stepped back a little from the light and said can i speak to ee in significant tones the other's invitation to come in was responded to by the country formula this will do thank ye after which the householder has no alternative but to come out he placed the candle on the corner of the dresser took his hat from a nail and joined the stranger in the porch shutting the door behind him i've long heard that you can do things of a sort began the other repressing his individuality as much as he could 
"'May be so, Mr. Enchard,' said the weather-caster. "'Ah, why do you call me that?' asked the visitor with a start. "'Because it's your name. Feeling you'd come, I've waited for ye, and thinking ye might be leery from your walk, I laid two supper-plates. Look ye here.' He threw open the door, and disclosed the supper-table, at which appeared a second chair, knife and fork, plate and mug, as he had declared. Henchard felt like Saul in his reception by Samuel, who remained in silence for a few moments, and throwing off the disguise of frigidity which he had hitherto preserved, he said, "'Then I had not come in vain. Now, for instance, can you charm away warts?' "'Without trouble.' "'Cure the evil?' "'That I have done.' "'With consideration, if they will wear the toad-bag by night as well as by day. "'Forecast the weather. "'With labour in time.' "'Then take this,' said Henchard. "'Tis a crown-piece. "'Now what is the harvest fortnight to be? Where, "'When can I know?' "'I've worked it out already, and you can know at once.' "'The fact was that five farmers had already been there on the same errand from different parts of the country.' By the sun, moon, and stars, by the clouds, the winds, the trees, and grass, the candle-flame and swallows, the smell of the herbs, likewise by the cat's eyes, the ravens, the leeches, the spiders, and the dung-mixin, the last fortnight in August will be rain and tempest. You are not certain, of course. As one can be in a world where all's unsure, t'will be more like living in Revelations this autumn than in England. "'Shall I sketch it out for you in a scheme?' "'Oh, no, no,' said Henchard. "'I don't altogether believe in forecasts. "'Come to second thoughts on such, but I—' "'You don't, you don't. "'Tis quite understood,' said Wido, without a sound of scorn. "'You've given me a crown because you've won too many. "'But won't you join me at supper now tis white in and all?' Henchard would gladly have joined, for the savour of the stew— had floated from the cottage into the porch, with such appetizing distinctness that the meat, the onions, and the pepper, and the herbs could be severally recognized by his nose. But as sitting down to hobnob there would have seemed to mark him too implicitly as the weather-caster's apostle, he declined and went his way. The next Saturday Henchard bought grain to such an enormous extent that there was quite a talk about his purchases among his neighbors, the lawyer, the wine-merchant, and the doctor also on the next and on all available days. When his granaries were full to choking, all the weathercocks of Casterbridge creaked and set their faces in another direction, as if tired of the southwest. The weather changed. The sunlight, which had been like tin for weeks, assumed the hues of topaz. The temperament of the welkin passed from the phlegmatic to the sanguine. An excellent harvest was almost a certainty, and as a consequence prices rushed down. All these transformations, lovely to the outsider, to the wrong-headed corn-dealer, were terrible. He was reminded of what he had well known before, that a man might gamble upon the square-green areas of fields as readily as upon those of a card-room. Henchard had backed bad weather, and apparently lost. He had mistaken the turn of the flood for the turn of the ebb. His dealings had been so extensive that settlement could not long be postponed, and to settle he was obliged to sell off corn that he had bought only a few weeks before at figures higher by many shillings a quarter. Much of the corn he had never seen. It had not even been moved from the ricks in which it lay stacked miles away. Thus he lost heavily. In the blaze of an early August day he met Farfrey in the market-place. Farfrey knew of his dealings, though he did not guess their intended bearing on himself, 
and commiserated him, but since their exchange of words in the South Walk they had been on stiffly speaking terms. Henchard for the moment appeared to resent the sympathy, but he suddenly took a careless turn. "'Ho! Oh, no, no! Nothing serious, man!' he cried with fierce gaiety. "'These things always happen, don't they? I know it has been said that figures have touched me tight lately, but is that anything rare? The case is not so bad as folk make out, perhaps. And Danny, a man might be a fool to mind the common hazards of trade.' But he had to enter the Castlebridge bank that day, for reasons which had never before sent him there, and to sit a long time in the partner's room with a constrained bearing. It was rumoured soon after that much real property as well as vast stores of produce, which had stood in Henchard's name in the town and neighbourhood, was actually the possession of his bankers. Coming down the steps of the bank he encountered Jop. Gloomy transactions just completed within had added fever to the original sting of Farfrae's sympathy that morning, which Henchard fancied might be satire disguised, so that Jop met with anything but a bland reception. The latter was in the act of taking off his hat to wipe his forehead, and saying, "'Fine hot day!' to an acquaintance. "'You can wipe and wipe and say a fine hot day, can ye?' cried Henchard in a savage undertone, imprisoning Jop between himself and the bank wall. "'If it hadn't been for your blasted advice, it might have been a fine day enough. "'Why did you let me go on, hey? "'When a word of doubt from you or anybody would have made me think twice, "'for you can never be sure of weather till tis past.' "'My advice, sir, was to do what you thought best.' "'A useful fellow, and the sooner you help somebody else in that way, the better.' "'Henchard continued his address to Job in similar terms, "'till it ended in Job's dismissal there and then, "'Henchard turning upon his heel and leaving him. "'You shall be sorry for this, sir, sorry as a man can be,' said Jop, standing pale and looking after the corn merchant as he disappeared in the crowd of market-men hard by. End of chapter 26